This is why a lot of people fail in AA, at least I think it is. They're asked to give up parts of themselves, and there is no plan to replace those broken parts with functional ones. The problem is when you start using AA meetings as your therapy, you're only going to get so far. Personal responsibility happens in step one, and then after that, it's all about what God is going to do for you. Why are people expected to constantly look down on themselves as part of this thing? Why is that such a huge part of what AA is? I didn't see anybody that was successful. I mean, there were people who had lost weight and who were working the program, but I'm like, all you're doing is deciding, oh, I can't eat this anymore. It makes me want to eat more of it. Never ever listen to anyone who wants to tell you that you are somehow too flawed and too broken to fix yourself without the aid of a God. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get unbound. You know, I really think it's time for AA and other groups like it to take their own advice and admit they have a problem. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight, we're going to take a look at 12-step programs, their effectiveness, and the disparity in their messaging about whether or not you have to believe in God for them to work. And just like everything else that this vile religion called Christianity touches, we're going to show how fraught with deception and doublespeak they are when it comes to how they steer people's thoughts about God, themselves, and their abilities to overcome addiction. We're going to have a lot to say about that in just a few minutes, but first, two stories that have more triggers than a white evangelical's gun collection and a more encouraging story that will make you think, believe it or not, we are still in Kansas, Toto. It's Christians Behaving Badly, Suffer the Children, Some More Edition. Trigger warning for child, physical, and sexual abuse by religious leaders in these two folks. Yeah. And it is pretty vile. It's very vile. And I ask this with all due trepidation, <laughs> what's our first story for this week? Well, in a story that will surprise precisely no one... AP has released a story about the inaction by leaders in the Mormon church in response to a confession of abuse by a church member. Here's part of the story by Hemet Mehta. If you are a member of the Mormon church and you have a problem, you're supposed to talk to your local bishop. And if the bishop has questions about how to handle an issue, say an accusation of sexual abuse, he can call a special 24-hour Helpline. Jesus Christ, these people have their own helpline. I mean, it doesn't help surprise line me. Helpline is in quotes. They is that, are is in, that what they actually call it, though? That is what they actually call it. It's just keep the quotes around that because... Yeah, yeah I won't steal your thunder, but yeah. <laughs> Big, huge air quotes on that. Yeah. If the social worker or counselor is told about the abuse, they are not told to report the matter to local authorities. Instead, if the issue appears to be serious, those staffers are told to call an attorney with the law firm Curtin McConkie, which represents the Mormon church. Yeah. Well, of course they have their own. I think pretty much every church uh, organization has their own they lawyers. They anyway, yeah. Now, leaders in the Mormon church generally are not educated in counseling or religion, so it does make sense to have something where the bishop can ask questions, but staffed by lawyers... Of course, we can't let our bishops give advice that might bring shame 
or lawsuits on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But they do anyway. Yeah. In 2018, the Mormon Church settled a lawsuit brought against them by multiple plaintiffs who said a man named Christopher Michael Jensen sexually abused their children while babysitting them and that church leaders knew about it but didn't act. They didn't alert law enforcement either. In the state of West Virginia, clergy members are required to notify the authorities about possible child abuse. Because Jensen's actions went unreported, other Mormon families allowed him to babysit their kids before his eventual arrest in 2013. Jensen was eventually classified by a judge as a violent sexual predator and is now serving a prison sentence of 35 to 75 years. Good. Very good. Yeah. In 2019, two mothers went to their local Mormon testimony meeting to warn the congregation that their leaders helped cover up a pedophile. They were drowned out by music, singing, and church leaders. These cover-ups, as it turns out, were aided by this helpline. And the lawyers on the other end of that helpline did nothing. Which is more than I would even expect them to do. Yeah. Given who they represent. The lawsuit currently under discussion in an Associated Press article by Michael Resendez concerns a Mormon man named Paul Douglas Adams, who sexually assaulted his own daughters for years, video recorded the assaults, and shared them online. You gotta be fucking kidding me. Just horrible, like, disgusting stuff. I mean, one of the girl's adopted parents says she won't refer to her daughter as anything but her initials. Because her pictures are still online. That's it. It's you see, forever. That's, that's the problem. You know, once it's out there, it's just out there. It's out there forever. Yeah. You can do anything you want to, uh, to try and get something taken down. But that's the, the nature of data is that it's duplicatable. Yeah. And you're never going to be rid of it. Once it's out there, it is just out there. And the simple fact that this was his own daughter. That makes it just so much more vile, it's so, much, so much more horrible. And just the fact that he's never going to be able to get away from this, that she is never going to be able to yeah. get away from this. That yeah. is, that, that's the worst part of all of this, as far as yeah. I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. When Adam's daughter, MJ, was five, he admitted to his bishop that he was sexually abusing her. The bishop called the hotline. The confession remained a secret You absolutely can do nothing, Bishop John Harrod said in a recorded interview with law enforcement. Adams continued raping MJ for another seven years. And then, when another daughter was born, he began assaulting her, too. She was only six weeks old when he started. Oh, my goodness. Six weeks old. Yeah. I I just, I mean, I take a little solace in the fact that a six-week-old is never going to have recollections yeah. of this. But what Jeez. kind of sick, twisted, utterly reprobate mind does it take to even think about doing something like that to an infant? I mean, I'm thankful beyond words that I can't wrap my brain around it. Yeah. It was only after officials in New Zealand came upon one of the videos depicting his sexual abuse and informed law enforcement in the U.S. about it that Adams was finally arrested in 2017. He took his own life before a trial could begin. You know, I think 
being in his shoes, that's probably the solution that I would have implemented too. Oh yeah. You know, I just I I would be looking at my own future and just not wanting to deal with it. Yeah. And the other part of that, I'm sure, has to do with you know, I I don't even know if this is the right way to put it, but when you look at your actions and the type of person that you are, I'd like to think that there was something in the dark recesses of his mind that told him just how horrible yeah. the things that he was doing were. And that may very well have been part of the contributor too, being forced to deal with the things that he did and then starting to see them for what they really were. Yeah. Yeah. Three of Adam's kids are now plaintiffs in the lawsuit which goes after the church, as well as the bishops involved in covering up what their father did. The bishop's lawyer says those men should be off the hook. Of course he does. These bishops did nothing wrong. They didn't violate the law, and therefore they can't be held liable. Attorney William Maladon referred to the suit as a money grab. Oh, what an asshole. Yeah, seriously. Don't blame the bishops, he's saying. Blame the church instead. Meanwhile, the church is hiding behind religious and legal privilege. Arizona's mandated reporter law makes exceptions for clergy who feel that it's reasonable and necessary to withhold that information from authorities under church doctrine. Yes, but you're talking about a crime against a child, against children. Yeah. You're talking about a crime that has no statute of limitations. Yeah. And that any professional in any other context than this would be legally required to report. Yeah. We're talking about a law that was basically designed to protect Catholic priests from revealing things that they hear in the confessional. But right. of course, any religion can latch onto it and use it. Any religion is fighting against any law that makes them report stuff like this. Yeah, it's true. The helpline, which, by the by, destroys its records of the day's calls every single day. Gee, I wonder why. Is a really good way to keep things under wraps. The bishop tells the abuse victim he's calling the helpline and the victim thinks things are happening when in reality they can just say, just do nothing, they'll eventually drop it. After all, the only thing that really matters is that the Mormon church comes out squeaky clean. There's one bright spot in all this. The Adams children no longer live with their mother, who was eventually charged with child sex abuse and went to prison for two and a half years. Three of those children live with relatives. Three were taken in by other families. In the case of the infant who was abused, the Mormon family that took her in had no idea what she had been through until they sat in on the mother's sentencing hearing and learned the details of what their new child had been through. It was enough to make them leave the Mormon church for good. You know, as vile as this whole thing is, I'm considering that one a happy ending. I know. It, it's like the kids at least got out of there. Yeah. And like, you know, MJ is in a new family. The infant is in a new family. And their families seem to love them very much. Well, that's, I mean, it's good. It's, it's, it's a happy ending. But it just sucks that this had to be a thing to begin with. Yeah. You know, it sucks that they had to go through those things to begin with. And it sucks even worse that their church 
was too what's the word on what is what is even the word here that their church was i don't even want to say apathetic cold-hearted i I, cold-hearted i guess works (laughs) but it's just they flat out didn't care yeah because it would make them look bad if they actually did anything proactive because that would make it more public and from the standpoint of just good pr then you better be shredding those documents at the end of every day yeah. You know, and the simple fact that they use this, this front to deceive people into thinking that number one, someone is doing something proactive and number two, that someone actually gives a shit is yeah. super nefarious. Yeah, it definitely is. And as promised, it's a twofer on the child abuse front tonight. Yeah. So again, with trepidation, what do we have next? In another story that will surprise precisely no one. Former students of a Christian school have alleged violent and targeted abuse from staff members. A Christian school in Saskatoon, Canada, was a hub of physical and emotional abuse for several years, according to 18 former students. Several of them recently shared their stories with the Canadian Broadcasting Company, arguing that no matter what happens legally, the government needs to stop giving subsidies and tax breaks to the private religious school. There's Christina Hutchinson, who clammed up when asked to recite the school prayer, only to be subject to an exorcism by her teacher. There's Coy Nolan, who is subject to a violent exorcism to cast out his gay demons. There's Caitlin Erickson, who is accused of whispering in church and then paddled by two male staffers. There's Sean Kotelmatch, who reacted to dull, boredom-inducing, self-directed lessons by talking back to the adults and was punished with solitary confinement. Only 13 at the time, he was told to go to a tiny windowless room for the entire school day. That continued for two full weeks. It was only when he was older that he realized he struggled with dyslexia. And it's sad that that happens in this day and age. It's disappointing but not surprising that something like this would be missed in a Christian education setting. Because that's, I mean, the way that most Christian schools operate, there's very, very little in the way of inclusion or deference to special education or anything like that. And they're so geared to think in such black and white terms about certain things that they couldn't even begin to fathom that this could be about a problem that this person had with the way his education was being delivered. So they put him in a room with no windows for two weeks because he was frustrated that he couldn't learn. Yeah. Unbelievable. And it's like we always say, there is no hate on earth like Christian love. Yeah. These are stories of four of the 18 students that have filed complaints with law enforcement. The Saskatoon police have been investigating this matter for over a year, and now the prosecutors will decide whether to pursue further action. The school is called Legacy Christian Academy, and they used to promote a book called The Child Training Seminar that included 20 pages on how to discipline kids with spanking and paddling, even if it was visibly abusive. Gee, what does that sound like? Hmm. Didn't we just talk about this? Yeah, we did. Sometimes spanking will leave marks on the child. If some liberal were to hear this, they'd immediately charge us with advocating child beating, states the handbook. Because you are. 
Yeah, I mean, let's just call it what it is. Yeah. The school denies any wrongdoing and claims it's a very different place than it was two decades ago, even though many of the staffers never left, and even though the former administrators still have jobs in the field, albeit at different schools, and even though the school has never apologized to the students, much less acknowledged any disciplinary mistakes. The school also claims the pro-corporal punishment handbook is no longer used, but not putting something in writing doesn't mean it's no longer happening. The school has received government funding for decades. The student victims want the government to at least halt all funding until the investigation is complete. It's not a huge ask, but a decision about charges may not be made until next spring. Just one more way that we can see that Christian schools simply cannot police themselves. Abuse runs rampant and nothing is ever done about it. Because they're islands unto themselves. Yeah. And I mean, this this is Canada. This isn't even here. Yeah. This is in Canada. And they're still treated like a bunch of entitled toddlers Yeah. when it comes to giving them what they want and turning a blind eye when they're naughty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to round out things with something just a little bit more positive. You see, I, this is just one more of those things that tells me that there are, in fact, enough people out there with a brain in their head, regardless of what their political leanings may be, they still have enough of a brain in their head to understand the difference between right and wrong. Yeah. So let's end this particular Christians Behaving Badly segment on at least sort of a high note here. Yeah. And finally tonight, in a story that actually did kind of surprise me, over half the voters who came out in deep red Kansas voted to keep an amendment out of the state constitution that would allow lawmakers to make abortion illegal. Wow. Not only that, but it happened during the Republican primary election. Mm -hmm. It was a ballot initiative to add an amendment to the Kansas state constitution that would amend the constitution to state that there is no right to an abortion or public abortion funding. I'm sure the Republicans were counting on that initiative passing. Turnout for this election was an astonishing 904,000, almost exactly half of the electorate, with 59% voting to preserve abortion rights. Perhaps the most chilling result for Republicans nationwide is the utter disregard of party affiliation in the result. Only 26% of registered Kansas voters are Democrats, meaning Republicans were well represented in that no vote as well. And across the state, from the bluest counties to the reddest ones, abortion rights outran support for Joe Biden in the 2020 election. This increase in voter turnout could be indicative of the tremendous uptick of women registering to vote after Roe v. Wade was overturned. Seriously, the graph is in the Only Sky article that's linked in the show notes. And the graph is incredible. There's like this little indicator of when Roe v. Wade was overturned, and then there's this huge vertical line depicting the amount of voters that were registered Wow! in Kansas. Yeah. Um, people pay attention Yeah. because if you don't think that your vote matters, guess what? Just ask the people of Kansas whether or not your vote matters. And that was with only half of the electorate showing up. Yeah. And I think that the opinion of the people was made quite clear. Oh yeah, definitely. So I'll say it again. 
do not sit on your ass. Nope. Do not sit on your ass on election night. You need to get out and vote. Yes, you Because do. this is the type of thing that happens when people on the side of right get up off their ass and do their civic duty and make sure that their voice is heard at every level of government. Right. And, you know, again, I enjoyed the opportunity here to uh, yeah. to end this off on a little bit more of a high note because, you know, on, on the heels of two absolutely hideous stories, um, oh, yeah. it's nice to know that at least there are a quorum of people out there who identify as conservative, who still understand that what someone else does with their own body is none of their fucking business. Yeah. It's nice to know that there are that many of them out there. Definitely. And I like to end it off on a high note when I can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whenever I have opportunity. But you and I both know that we're not here to uh, to deliver happy news. No. We're here to expose what's going on out there in the world of evangelicalism and how this absolutely horrific religion is running a train on society. Well, when people who have a brain in their head and understand the difference between right and wrong actually do something to, to protect women in, in particular right now, this is the big issue, to protect women and women's rights and women's lives and women's freedom of choice, you know, those, those types of things do, in fact, cross party lines. And I, I'm hopeful, I'm not going to say definitively that we'll see this in November, but I'm very hopeful that we're going to start seeing more examples of this because we talked a week or two ago about the, uh, it was the House upholding gay marriage. So when I look at that and then I look at this, it does instill in me a little bit of hope. But I also know that it all hinges on people actually voting and letting their voices be heard. This is what happens when you do. So keep that in mind in November. And on that happy note, we just want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. $5 is all it takes to help us help other people get and stay unbound. That is why we're here. That is why we're doing what we're doing, why we come back every week with more content for you to enjoy and hopefully share around. And that's the other part of the equation. If you are a little short on funds right now, we get that. But there are many, many other ways that you can help us, not the least of which being telling people that we're out here, sharing our content on social media, giving us those all-important likes and good ratings and good reviews. We appreciate those of you who are out there doing just that. And it's fun watching people discover episodes that we did a while ago <laughs> and, uh, and just realizing that there are people out there that are kind of binging us right now. It's uh, it's an interesting thing, just looking at the numbers and, and the episodes that people are downloading. I will be completely 100% transparent here. There have been a few of these episodes where I've gone through just in the last couple of weeks to see who's downloading what. It's like, oh, we actually did an episode on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we've been, we've been at this for a while. It's been like two and a half years that we've been doing this and now 119 episodes. So there's a lot out there for literally anyone and everyone coming out of evangelical faith. There are all kinds of things that these people need to be need to know and be encouraged by. And those who are still in it need to understand about this religion that they uh, hold so near and dear. You can be a part of that. 
And we thank those of you who are already a part of that, not just coming back every week and hearing what we have to say next, but letting other people know that what we have to say is truthful and relevant and in your face and all of the things that the fight against this religion need to be. I'm all for the uh, the comedic angle. I'm all for interjecting a little bit of humor in certain things now and then. But sometimes you just need something that's a little bit more in your face. And I think that that's what this podcast delivers more than anything is just blunt force honesty about this religion that frames love as hate and hate is love. And just keep helping us with your likes and your shares and all those other things. And if you can help us out financially, once again, patreon.com slash unbound podcast network is where you're going to go to make that donation. And we thank you in advance for at least considering supporting us in that way next week. Oh, where to begin with what's (laughs) going to happen next week. Um, There have been a couple of things just recently in my life that have touched my life, touched my business, touched parts of me that basically struck a pretty good nerve. It's kind of an abstract kind of concept that I'm working on for next week. But basically, I don't even have a working title, but we're going to be talking about the things that religion in general, not even just evangelicalism, but religion and spirituality in general have a tendency to rob people of and the things that we miss out on because we're too busy being taken in by our religion and things that we've been taught to believe as part of our religions or as part of our spiritual disciplines. And all the while thinking that this is something that's good for us. This is something that's enhancing our lives. Well, guess what? We're going to talk about some of the ways that religion and spirituality detract from your enjoyment of life, even to the point of causing detriment to things like your relationships, your job. There are many, many, many prices to be paid for adhering to basically fairy tales. And we're going to talk about some of that next week. I'm going to get a little bit more personal and a little bit more real because there have been times where I've used this mic as a means of catharsis and a means of purgation. And next week is going to be kind of one of those days. I'm probably going to have to do some heavy editing. I'm pretty sure it's going to be an exercise in oversharing that I'm going to have to throttle back on in editing just a little bit. But you know what? Every now and then, Spider just needs to purge some shit. And that's going to be next week. So now that I've given you that marvelously vague um, description of what we're going to be doing on our next episode, two weeks from now, we're going to be bringing you our review of Joe versus the Volcano. And uh, interesting just how much truth there is in this movie about things like belief and faith also. You may think we're overanalyzing it a little bit only because it was just a a goofy, campy little uh, comedy that probably was never meant to be taken that seriously. But, you know, there, there are a lot of movies and, and TV shows, TV episodes, whatever, that fall under that category. Yeah, you're supposed to laugh at it, but that doesn't mean that there isn't an underlying message. And we're going to take it apart just like we do all the rest and get to the bottom of what the actual message is in this movie about faith and the things that faith can make us do. So kind of a companion piece to next week's episode. We're going to, it's going to be a little bit heavy and then we're going to get a little bit lighter, (laughs) but it's the same general concept that we're going to be discussing over the next two weeks. So with all of that firmly in place, let's just dive right in to the subject of 12 step programs and why they really just flat out aren't all that. 
12-step programs. It may seem like a silly question to some, but for the majority, it's little more than a thing we've heard referenced in various contexts, usually surrounding AA or Alcoholics Anonymous. There are loads of 12-step programs, all built on the same foundation established by AA. And here's just a short list. For substance addictions, you have Al-Anon and Alateen. These, this is actually for friends and family of alcoholics. You've got Cocaine Anonymous or CA, Crystal Meth Anonymous, Heroin Anonymous, Marijuana Anonymous. Um, I take issue with this one yeah. because there's absolutely no scientific evidence that marijuana is addictive. But I can see where it can start being a little bit of a detriment in your life, too. Pills Anonymous, I've never heard of that one, but it's certainly, it doesn't surprise me that it's out there. Then you've got 12-step programs for behavioral addictions. Gamblers Anonymous, Emotions Anonymous, that's described as being for people with mental and emotional illness. Wow. I don't feel like a 12-step program is going to be the, uh, the, no. the solution to any kind of emotional or mental illness. No. Overeaters Anonymous, you're going to have a little bit to say about that oh, one yeah. in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Sex and Love Anonymous, for people with sex addiction, again, no scientific evidence that that's a thing either. Workaholics Anonymous, for people with work addiction, work addiction. So you're highly motivated and you are driven to succeed and now you need a 12-step program to what? Become lazier? I don't know. And you know what? I, I do know that there are people out there who uh, who put a little bit more uh, into their careers and into their work life than is healthy for their family life and doesn't give them the downtime that they need. And yes, there are people out there who have sacrificed marriages and other relationships, yeah. the whole cats in the cradle thing. I get that, but I still have a problem with this being classified as an addiction. Yeah. Then there are other kinds of 12-step meetings like Celebrate Recovery and Refuge Recovery that are both, for whatever reason, classified as faith-based because all 12-step programs are faith-based regardless of what they want to say about them. You've got Wellbriety, which is a Native American version of AA, and then SMART, which is... Um, it's it's classified as self-empowered recovery. There's nothing about a 12-step program that is self-empowering either, and we're going to get into that in a few minutes too. But since most people are only familiar with a few of the steps that make up a 12-step program, let's just run through all of these in order so that everybody knows what they are. These are how they progress and how they're described by AA, which is where it all started. And I'm going to add my commentary to some of these. I've got a little bit more to say on some of them than others, but let's see what all of these steps are and what they entail. These are the 12 steps as outlined by Alcoholics Anonymous. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. From my point of view, there are only two things that I am powerless over in my life, the forces of nature and death. Both will have their way regardless of anything I do to counter them. Anything else out there is manipulable, controllable, and within our own power to change, either with help or on our own. If someone or something wants you to see yourself as powerless, it's because they want you to see yourself as something that can be controlled. They convince you that you have no control over your substance of choice or your drive to abuse it. Well, I call bullshit on that one. You absolutely positively do have the power to break free from it. 
Well, isn't that the point of AA, breaking free from addiction? Well, yes, but it's clearly at the cost of your own sense of accomplishment. You didn't earn your five-year coin. Your higher power, your sponsor, and your sober community held you back from the bottle for five years. You had no control over that because your life is out of control and it's unmanageable and all of that. So you need all of these externals to keep pressing toward this goal of staying sober. And if you ever so much as take a sip of wine ever again in your entire life, according to AA, you'll be back on that downward spiral starting from square one and step one. And again, I call bullshit. The idea that addiction is a lifetime thing is little more than a notion perpetuated by people who benefit from you believing it. If you believe that you can never drink alcohol responsibly again, you're almost definitely going to be right. You will always need the intervention of your higher power to keep you away from the booze. But there are many, many, many people who have come out of alcoholism and can and do drink responsibly and not to excess. Why? Because they've likely made better decisions about the help they've sought, they've learned the actual root causes for their addiction in therapy, and they've spent more time focusing on solving the problems that led to their substance abuse issues than on the substance abuse problems themselves and how fucking powerless they are over them without God. Mm. And that's just the first step. Yeah. <laughs> step two. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. People, you haven't lost your sanity if you get involved in substance abuse. The sad truth of the matter is that people very often do all kinds of drugs as a means of holding onto those fleeting pieces of themselves that they are losing to things like anxiety, depression, childhood trauma, and more. This is why you need more than an AA meeting. You need competent, professional help removing substances from the sanity equation. Step number three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. <laughs> Bookmark that. Yeah. It's going to come back a few times. And my response to this one is, again, so much for personal achievement. If you've turned yourself over to God, then it's God who gets and deserves the credit for you getting sober. Number four, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And you know, with this one... I can honestly say I think we could all use a little bit more of that. I think that there are a lot of people out there that could use a little bit more of that. But I don't see why it has to be something that you do when you're close to rock bottom. I think that it's something that we should all be doing to greater or lesser extents on the regular. Number five, uh, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. So my question here is, why does God need to be involved? Because the rest of this sounds to me a lot like therapy. Yeah. Admitting to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Well, you know, it, I feel like that is at least part of the foundation of some kinds of therapy mm -hmm. and the reasons why some people get involved in therapy. But the problem is when you start using AA meetings as your therapy, you're only going to get so far. Because the same, it's the same rhetoric, night after night, week after week, the messaging doesn't change and it's not individualized to the point where you can actually take it and do something with it for you. And that to me is a major problem. So if you take God out of the equation in five and look at that as a call to getting yourself well by way of therapy, talking to someone who understands what you're going through and is able to help you guide yourself through it, 
I wouldn't think this one was a bad one either. You just got to take God out of the mix. <laughs> Number six, we were entirely ready to have God remove all of our defects of character. And I just, when, yeah. when I saw this, I went right back to Star Trek V. Yeah. And Kirk saying, I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. Well, we kind of do. The, our defects of character, if someone were to just take these things away and, you know, just just take a, a bottle of ecclesiastical whiteout and just take them all away, then I would be missing a huge chunk of myself. The things that I've gone through, the things that I've done, the wrongs that I've done, everything that makes up this thing called my life also makes up this thing called me. And you don't deal with the problems that drove you to addiction in the first place by just handing them over to a deity. That's the gospel message right there, pretty much in black and white, because what are they asking you to do? They're asking you to give all of the bad things about you over to God. Yeah. And isn't that the same thing as laying all of your burdens and all of your sins at the foot of the cross? It's the exact same messaging, and it is equally toxic. And I think in this context, more toxic, because it goes a long way toward removing personal responsibility from the equation here. Personal responsibility happens in step one. And then after that, it's all about what God is going to do for you. And that's that's the biggest problem for it with, with AA. Um, and I'm sorry, but you don't simply remove defects of anything. Yeah. You replace defective parts. Let's let's say let's say it's your car. Okay, you replace defective parts with functional ones. Right. That is how you restore it to a working machine. I don't just throw it away and try to drive the rest of the car. Okay, and this is why a lot of people fail in AA. At least I think it is. They're asked to give up parts of themselves, and there is no plan to replace those broken parts with functional ones. Number seven, we humbly asked him, God, to remove our shortcomings. And again, I don't want my shortcomings taken away. I want to face them head on, deal with what I've done, and see how it fits into the big picture of why I turned to drugs or alcohol in the first place. That makes a whole hell of a lot more sense than just asking a non-entity to remove my shortcomings. And what happens when we do this and don't instantly change and become better people with the wave of a magic wand? Why are people expected to constantly look down on themselves as part of this thing? Why is that such a huge part of what AA is or what any 12-step program is? Number eight, We made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Now, this is also good advice for literally anyone. As far as I'm concerned, I don't know about a list per se, but having the ability to recognize our wrongs is something that more people need to work on. Number nine, we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I'm trying to create in my head a scenario where this would be a thing You know, I'm thinking that if you tried to make amends with the husband of the woman you had an affair with, that might be a little bit on the end of doing harm. But there are very, very few instances and situations where I would see that that would be problematic. But they do kind of provide you with a scapegoat in the uh, previous one where it just says that you became willing to make those amends. 
So it looks to me like there's a little bit too much of a pick and choose kind of thing going on with this. But I do understand on certain levels why there has to be that little bit of separation there too. And I do think that it's definitely a good thing. If there are people in your life that you have wronged, like I said a couple of weeks ago, I'm sorry is a vital part of your vocabulary. It has to be. Number 10, we continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. My question here is to who? To yourselves or to Sky Daddy? I mean, it's the same difference. But when you tag on that external, I think it means less. Number 11, we sought through prayer and meditation, oh Jesus Christ, to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Now, I want us to bookmark step number 11 when we start talking about how so many organizations out there try to tell you that you don't have to be religious or believe in God to succeed in a 12-step program. Just read step 11 again, and it contradicts any argument in that arena. But I'm going to come up with a few other counter-arguments to that notion in just a couple, too. And when it comes to this whole seeking things through prayer and meditation bit, where exactly do atheists fit into this one, like at all? And the answer is that they don't, but they want you to think that we can. So step number 12, we have arrived having had a spiritual awakening. Again, a spiritual awakening is a necessary part of getting through the 12 steps. So bookmark that too. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. So I guess number 12 is what? Their great commission? Yeah, they're proselytizing. Pretty much. And there it is. You know, The final step involves a spiritual awakening. It all comes down to this. Here's the spiritual truth I learned on my way here and why I'm always going to be tethered to my higher power forever and ever. Amen. And that is how Alcoholics Anonymous and most 12-step programs come full circle. Mm -hmm. Note with me, please, that seven, seven of the 12 steps involve the intervention and oversight of God as part of the process of getting and staying sober. And yet... Lots of sources will try to tell you that you don't have to believe in God to participate in a 12-step program. Bullshit. They're counting on you embracing their higher power doctrine. How can you say something isn't about God when just shy of 60% of it is predicated and dependent on his, as we understand him, involvement in this process? In the course of my research, I kept seeing the same messaging being propagated over and over and over again. 12-step programs aren't predicated on a belief in a deity. The problem is that most of these sources quickly backpedal and at least in a subtle way steer the conversation back around to God or the concept of an external higher power. External being the most important part of that equation. And here are just a couple of examples. This one comes from futuresrecoveryhealthcare.com. Many people mistakenly believe that to be in a 12-step program, you must believe in a traditional view of God and religion. This isn't true. In fact, in the very 12 steps, the belief in a God of your own understanding is clearly stated. So first they say it's not true that you have to have a traditional view of God and religion, but they don't say that you can believe in no God. What they say 
is that the belief in a God of your own understanding is clearly stated. You have to believe in something. And that's just the bottom line. So yes, futuresrecoveryhealthcare.com, whoever it was who wrote this article, I'm not sure how you're defining traditional here, but I mean, belief in a God is the same in any religion that I know of. So I don't know what passes for traditional here, Mm -hmm. but all I know is that they can't steer away from the fact that you have to believe in something to be part of this. And please don't try to give it a cushion and don't say in one sentence, it's not true. You have to believe in God for this. And in the very next that people need to believe in God in whatever way they understand. Either God is a required part of the equation or he, to use their term, is not. I mean, which is it? It's not like I can't comprehend the words that I'm reading. There is nothing there that leaves even a tiny bit of latitude for non-belief. Not the slightest bit. Step three of Alcoholics Anonymous tells us that it's necessary to, quote, make a decision to turn our wills and lives over to the care of God as we understand him. So you're going to sit there and tell me that you're not promoting a specific agenda here. You're going to tell me that we're not talking about a specific God. What's with the pronouns? Why on earth are we using that particular pronoun if we're not talking about the traditional God of the Bible? Chapter four of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is purportedly aimed at atheists and agnostics, but is it? The chapter is said to be, quote, aimed to help the non-believer find a higher power so they can make the start at sobriety. So we're going to help you believe in God. I mean, it says it. It says it quite clearly and succinctly. We're going to lead you to a higher power. You can't just forsake that part of it. We'll help you find one. And in that instance, it's as who understands him. Yeah. The book goes on to tell the story of how many of the original members of AA were agnostic or atheist, but that each one eventually had, quote, a spiritual experience that led to believing in a power greater than themselves. Oh, you don't have to be religious to succeed in AA, but we've converted a few atheists along the way, too. Notice that they were atheists and agnostics, and now they've had a spiritual experience that has convinced them that there's something bigger out there besides themselves. So it's all about conversion. It's all about you thinking the way that they want you to think. Right. You can start out as an atheist, but to fully experience the 12 steps, you can't specifically stay an atheist. Okay. Noted. (laughs) And this one, this quote comes directly from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, fourth edition, page 44. To one who feels he is an atheist or agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. But to continue as he is means disaster, especially if he is an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. And who gets to decide that? Yeah. To be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. Well, here's the question. Why are those the only alternatives? And the book never actually answers that question. There is no middle ground here. It's very, very black and white, just like most evangelical thinking is. AA is not necessarily an evangelical organization, but it certainly does follow a lot of the same models when it comes to what your average evangelical church wants you to believe. Oh, definitely. 
And here's another quote from, uh, from the article on Futures Recovery Healthcare. If you are living with addiction to alcohol or drugs, it's important to understand that just believing that there is something out there in the world greater than you is all you need to do to begin the 12-step programs. In fact, you don't have to believe in anything to simply go to a 12-step meeting, which in itself can be life-changing. So, I mean, the again, yeah. double messaging in the exact same paragraph. First, they say, well, you know what? It's a really life-changing experience once you figure out your higher power. And then they say, ah, but you know what? You don't necessarily have to believe in anything to go through the 12 steps. Uh, but, but, but a majority of them are predicated on the involvement of God. So how do you get away from that? The answer is that you don't. So what if I don't believe in anything greater than myself? Because even the majority of 12-step programs out there that are considered secular have one glowing, irreconcilable problem. Let's see how well you've been listening, because I've pointed this out a lot in a lot of other contexts so far on the show. Here is one list of higher power alternatives that I've found. They say that your higher power can be the universe. Your higher power can be love. It can be scientific law. It can be the 12-step group itself. It can be psychology. It can be consciousness. Or it can be community, which I think the 12-step group and community, that's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. But I wouldn't be a bit surprised if they were talking about something like, you know, church community yeah. in that instance. Mm -hmm. So what's the problem here? Five out of seven of these things have the same thing in common. What is it? Well... They all still acquiesce to something external. And that applies to the universe, scientific law, the 12-step group, psychology, and community. These are all externals that you can reach out to to find your higher power. There are only two left on the list, and that would be love and consciousness. And those two things are an emotion and the reason we experience things like emotion, respectively. Your consciousness isn't a higher power. It's just the reason why you have to be bothered by people pressuring you to have one. That's one of the downsides to having this thing called consciousness, yeah. as we can be consciously coerced into believing things and adopting ideas. So the only things that even remotely force you to look within yourself are things that are abstract and open to infinite interpretation. Things like love and consciousness. Everything else is an external. So turning to it as a higher power is identical to turning to a deity. When you turn to a deity, you assign it power. When you turn to the universe, your 12-step group, and your little pocket of the sober community as your higher power, you've done the same thing. You've decided that these things have power, so you acquiesce to them. The entire thing is designed to make you think and behave like a theist. Now, remember, most of the atheist and agnostic early adopters of AA eventually had, quote, spiritual experiences. And guess what? You can have spiritual epiphanies whose origins are the universe, science, your AA sponsor, your cat, or the fucking flying spaghetti monster. And all of them are going to be equally valid because even if you're leaning on your perceived higher power, at the end of the day, those epiphanies came right out of your own pretty little head anyway. Now, let's say I consciously and aggressively resist the whole notion of God as part of this. I refuse to appeal to a higher power. What then? Is there a place in a 12-step program for me? Well, no, and for many of the reasons we've already mentioned. Here's the thing. There are alcoholic atheists out there. 
there are atheist drug addicts out there. And the circumstances that brought them to those places are probably what made them atheists. Like I've said before, major traumas in life lead in one of two directions for a lot of people. They either lead them away from religion or full speed ahead into it. It depends on the individual. But make no mistake about it. If you are an atheist, the goal of any 12-step program is to convert you. They don't specify Christianity, but the phrase God as you understand him is literally everything I will ever need to know about what their agenda actually is. And I'll take it a step further. They'd rather convert you than help you overcome your addiction. Yes, this is just my opinion, but think about it. What do you think the success rate is with AA? Ballpark figure. You know, just get a number in your head. 40%, 30, 20, well, according to an article on NPR.org, Dr. Lance Dodes, an actual medical professional with 20 years experience treating and studying addiction, said this, quote, there is a large body of evidence now looking at AA success rate, and the success rate of AA is between 5 and 10%. Most people don't seem to know that because it's not widely publicized. There are some studies that have claimed to show scientifically that AA is useful. These studies are riddled with scientific errors, and they say no more than what we knew to begin with, which is that AA has probably the worst success rate in all of medicine. It's not only that AA has a 5 to 10% success rate. If it was successful and was neutral the rest of the time, we'd say okay, but it's harmful to the 90% who don't do well, and it's harmful for several important reasons. One of them is that everyone believes that AA is the right treatment. Mm -hmm. AA is never wrong, according to AA. If you fail in AA, it's you that's failed. Well, shit, what does that sound like? Here's what I'm hearing. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't utilize your higher power. You were never really committed to this in the first place. You, 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 you. It's yeah. all about you and your shortcomings and your inability to lay them down at the feet of your higher power. And that is why you're back in the bottle. Not because our system failed you, because you failed to use it the right way. That's what they will tell you. Dr. Dodes also makes another interesting observation, and I can relate to this one big time. Mm. Again, quoting directly from the, from the NPR article, the reason that the 5 to 10% do well in AA actually doesn't have to do with the 12 steps themselves. It has to do with the camaraderie. It's a supportive organization with people who are on the whole kind to you, and it gives you a structure. Some people can make a lot of use of that. And... To its credit, AA describes itself as a brotherhood rather than a treatment. So as you can imagine, a few people given that kind of setting are able to change their behavior at least temporarily, maybe permanently. But most people can't deal with their addiction, which is deeply driven by just being in a brotherhood. I look at this like I did my Bible camp experience. I got sucked in a lot by the camaraderie aspect of that. I found acceptance and support and I was treated with kindness. It was all good. But, but let's not forget that the vast majority of people presented with the gospel 
reject it outright. Likewise, the majority of people's brains reject the rhetoric of AA. But if you have personal issues with things like self-esteem, personal trauma, or any of the baggage that leads people to seek shelter in the gospel, add addiction to the mix and there's a decent chance that AA will have the same effects on someone as going to church. It provides them with a community that demonstrates support and acceptance in a largely non-judgmental atmosphere, and it makes them feel better about themselves. Frankly, I'm amazed that it isn't more successful just on that basis, to be honest. It does provide something for participants to cling to, but if you've been following the conversation so far, it doesn't stop there, does it? Nope. The God shit works its way in, and a lot of the people who are on the turn from religion side of the equation, once they've gone through personal traumas, losses, abuses, and more, and this is the much larger of the two groups, folks, these people will decide that they have had enough and just abandon AA yeah. or any of the other uh, organizations that are out there. Yeah. So... You know a thing or two about this. I want you to jump yeah. in now and talk about your experience with Overeaters Anonymous. Yeah. It was suggested to me that I go to OA or Overeaters Anonymous by my last therapist. I was kind of iffy on it, but I was still sort of a theist yeah. when I decided to go, but it took like six months for me to actually go. Yeah. But I figured I, I would try it and, you know... It was nice, but it's like, okay. But the only meeting I could make it to that was anywhere near my house was a really small meeting. It was a very small meeting with people who have been meeting for over 20 years. I mean, these people were older than me, obviously. And how many of them still had weight problems? Um, most of them. Yep. And some of them very, very badly. They were experiencing some of the health problems that come with long-term obesity. Mm -hmm. And I was like, while it's kind of nice to see that people are still coming, is it doing them any good? Apparently not. I mean, you, I can, mean, you can literally look at them and see the results. Right. It's like, I don't want to be here and just spinning my wheels for the next 20 years. Yeah. But they have no other plan for you. you no, see, they there, really there's no don't. other strategy. And... The only strategy they give you is find a sponsor and go through the 12 steps. Mm -hmm. Oh, that first one, finding a sponsor, good luck with that. Especially in a group that small. And it doesn't have to be necessarily that group. It can be other groups. But the problem is that the OA is way less popular than AA. Yeah. AA, you can find a meeting every single day. At every hour of the day, you could probably. Pretty much. But OA, there was not as much. I think there were maybe like five meetings, and they're all during the day on the weekdays. So I, when you're at work. I'm at work. Yeah. So it's like there was one woman who was an atheist who succeeded pretty well. I mean, she was not like skinny or anything, but she looked healthy and, you know, happy, and she's she was still an atheist. But I'm like, she was raised an atheist. Mm -hmm. Someone like me who came out of it and I don't want to go back. It's like a split in your mind where part of you believes in some random thing. That's your higher power. Yeah. And it's like, 
I can't do that to myself. I've got enough problems. No, I, I, I couldn't just create a construct in my head to yeah. satisfy that either. Right. But the bottom line is that they expect you to have some semblance of a belief system too. And I could never just walk into that setting with a construct in my head. And that's kind of what you're talking about here too, is yeah. having to build a construct yeah. of a higher power, which, I mean, it's largely, largely, it's completely pointless. Right. But it was on Saturday morning, and everybody would come, we would sit in a circle, and we would go around and read stuff from the books, or talk about our lives, or talk about things that happened during the week. But it was like, there's like a liturgy for the meeting. And I'm going to call yeah. it that because I don't know what else to call it. No, I, but I know what you mean. There's it's a very list regimented. of things. It's very, very regimented. And I never liked the serenity prayer. So I was like, I hate this prayer. <laughs> but they, they say it before and after every meeting. Yeah. They have the same re beginning readings every meeting. The very fact that it begins with a prayer should tell you all you need to know right. about whether or not you can succeed in this if you don't believe in God. Yeah. After a while, I was just like, this isn't working. I mean, number one, I don't have a sponsor, and there I can't find one. Because mm -hmm. your sponsor has to have a sponsor. And if they get dropped by their sponsor, then they have to drop you. It's kind of like a pyramid. It's like yeah. a multi-level kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't see anybody that was successful. I mean, there were people who had lost weight and who were working the program, but I'm like, all you're doing is deciding, oh, I can't eat this anymore. It makes me want to eat more of it. And I'm like, okay, what happens when you're only eating like chicken? Yeah. You know, it was a lot. And every time I try some new weird thing with my diet, or they call it a plan of eating. Mm-hmm. Anytime I do that, I get a whole host of brand new ideas to get out of my head. What do you mean? You know, it's just sort of like how you think about yourself. It's very self-effacing. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it's just like I can't ask God to take away all of my defects of character because I don't believe in God. Mm -hmm. And I can't believe in God. And it's not healthy thinking in terms of something removing anything that's right. part of you. And you, you have to deal with it. You can't just throw it away. You have to deal with it. You know, it reminded me of, you know, when those preachers would say, oh, leave all your problems at the foot of the cross and he will help you. And it's like, I always felt like I must not be doing this right. Yeah, I know, right? Because it was like, I can't leave my problems. They're coming with me. I yeah, can't that's, just that's, leave them. That that's the that's the enigmatic part of that whole thing yeah. is that there's also no answer as to why those things still follow you home. Right. There's no answer for that. And you can't ask because you just didn't have enough faith. Exactly. So it was kind of like that. I enjoyed the camaraderie, but you know, I'm hanging around with more fat people. You know, and I liked these people, but I'm like how is this going to help me? Especially knowing how long some of them have been involved in this. Yes. And that they still struggle with all of the same things that they struggled with at their first meeting 20 years ago. Yeah. You say that, that for me, having that number, having that figure in my head of the really, really tiny percentage of people that this actually helps, I don't think that I would have gotten through one entire meeting 
looking around at a group of morbidly obese people yeah. who have been at this for however long they've been at it. It's like, well, if this works so well, if it's so effective, then, I mean, I'm sorry, but obesity is one of those things where you can actually see. You can yeah. actually see what it does. You can't always see what alcoholism does. There are plenty of functional alcoholics out there yeah. who uh, who go about their day, still go to work, still get shit done, but they have this kind of lurking in the shadows of their lives. But you can tell if someone has an issue with overeating. Yeah. Okay. Now, not all people who are overweight have issues with overeating. No. There are there are many, many, many factors that lead to obesity. But once you set foot in an OA meeting, you're acknowledging that you've done this to yourself. Right. So everyone who's sitting in that room, they're in the, the predicament that they're in because of their own behaviors. You know, for right. not not everybody who is obese is obese because they don't eat properly. I mean, a lot of medications in particular yeah. will lead to weight gain, which is why I'm glad that I don't have to be on any of them. <laughs> but yeah. um, but there, there are other mitigating factors. But when you set foot in a meeting like that, you're acknowledging that I put myself here. And that's a different kind of place than someone who gains weight because they don't want to be so depressed anymore. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I know that there were some people that I still thought were pretty darn big, but they're like, I used to be a lot bigger before well, yeah. OA. And I'm like, how? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not thin as a rail, but no. I mean, I still remember myself at 400. And, yeah. you know, it's like, I'm still doing pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah. But um, so maybe in instances like that, it has helped them to get you know, one or two steps down the road. Right. But if it's got them stalled, then what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, we would go out to Panera after meetings. And most of us... Go out for food after your... Most of us uh, just got coffee. Well, yeah. Some people got lunch, you know, and there was, there was one person who was just like hoarding bagels and wouldn't like let anybody look at them. And I'm like, you need therapy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I need some therapy. But these people are all older than me. Okay. And it's like, I can't tell them anything. Well, no. And it's I not mean, your job regardless it's not my of, job. of who they are or how old they are. Right. It's not my job. And these none of these people are trained. And there are no leaders. So, like, there's a list of who's going to lead the meeting. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I have to find this person. I have to get these things. And then I have to come and open up the meeting. Oh, yeah. I and remember that. A couple of times. I don't know how to do this. But it was like, I don't know. It was just like, and there was no rhyme or reason to what we were doing. There's structure, but there really isn't structure. Yeah. Yeah. They really try to not control with any type of, I don't know, leadership. It's like they don't want any leadership. They want everybody to own the group. Right. It, it, every, it, everyone is on the same level playing field. Right. Yeah. It's just a lot. But here's the thing. When you've got a group like that, someone needs to have a leadership role. Right. So instead of, instead of having one or two people always being the leaders, they share that responsibility right. within the group so that they can say that there are no hierarchies. Right. Basically, yeah. Right. It's part of your service, mm-hmm. too. 
because like one of the 12 traditions, there's 12 steps and 12 traditions. And the traditions basically talk about how you should run your group. Don't hire people. Make sure you maintain anonymity. Nobody has a last name. Right. You know, make sure that you try not to put anybody on a pedestal. All sorts of little things that they're like, you should remember these things when you have your group. Right. Even right down to, you know, whether or not serving refreshments. I think that one of the things with AA is that you only ever serve coffee. Yeah, and they don't even serve coffee at OA. Right. So I was like, I wish they did because, I mean, seriously. Probably stay awake during all that excitement, yeah. Yeah, there were a few times I was like fading. Mm-hmm. I yeah. would imagine you would have to. It, does, it just, doesn't sound very engaging. No. It's a lot of inner work and a lot of being in your own head and... I don't need to be in my own head. I'm in my own head all day. I need to do something else with my time. And that's basically, you know, I just sort of realized this isn't working. This isn't working for me. I don't have a sponsor. I can't even get off the ground. Because basically, if you don't have a sponsor, you're pretty much done. Yeah. Yeah. The the way that that works, you know, you, you have to be able to send up the bat signal once in a while. Yeah. And... If you don't have anyone to turn to in those moments, then you're pretty much dead in the water as far as any 12-step right. is concerned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nobody in my group had a sponsor. No one did. Yeah. Because it was just hard. So it didn't work for me. I'm glad I'm out of it because it was just a lot. Well, uh, congratulations for making it into the upper 95%. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And I want to talk to people right now who can relate to the kind of things that we've been talking about and can relate to your experiences with the, with a 12-step program. Let me first assure you of something that maybe no one else has or maybe you just haven't been in a place to where you were able to receive messaging like this until now. I just want you to know unequivocally and with just blunt force frankness, you didn't fail to conquer your addiction. Okay, if you've been through one of these programs and it didn't help you, it's not you who failed. They want you to think that you did, but you didn't. AA or NA or OA or NEA failed to educate you to the fact that you absolutely positively have the power to overcome your addiction. You don't have to acquiesce to a higher power and you don't have to confess that you are powerless. You can do it without them and without their higher power agenda. So take this little bit of advice and run with it. Never, ever listen to anyone who wants to tell you that you are somehow too flawed and too broken to fix yourself without the aid of a God. Never listen to anyone who tries to tell you that you have to give yourself over to the will of anyone or anything to be well. God does not need to be involved in any act of personal moral inventorying you might wish to undertake. A therapist will get you way further with that. And again, you need your defects of character. You need them to understand why you self-harm. They need repair. They do not need removal. How you think about you, how you cope with the things that led to your addiction and how you go about keeping them from bringing you back to that place again is a far more productive way of dealing with your addiction than going to meetings every night because you've been told that if you don't, you'll start drinking again. 
or you'll order that decadent dessert the next time you go out or whatever the thing is. But let's just try and keep it in the realm of substance abuse just for a minute. Knowing why you turned to, and actually, no, I'm not even going to do that because I think that food was one of my drugs of choice for a long time too, especially fast food, especially McDonald's. So I can certainly see where OA ties into this. There is no McDonald's addiction either, but I certainly did use that food as a major coping mechanism, especially during one specific period of my life. And in that one specific and very short period of my life, I managed to pack on 80 pounds compliments of the golden arches and my own stupid will of walking through those doors like twice a day, literally twice a day for about a year. So, you know, I, I get where all of this comes together, but knowing why we turn to these things, at least this has been my experience. I can't speak for everybody, but knowing why I turned to the things that I turned to got me way further than trying to hold off my urge to go through that drive-through. And it's the same with any kind of actual addiction too. Alcohol, narcotics, whatever it is, whatever your substance of choice is or was, you're always going to get further by understanding the whys than you will fighting off the what. The substance, whatever it was, isn't the enemy. The things that made you turn to it for comfort and solace, those are the enemies that you need to be confronting. And yes, it's important to recognize how our actions affect us and the people around us. But can we stop acting like we're the only ones who need to make amends? What about the people who harmed us? Are we allowed to be angry at them? Are people who suffer from addiction allowed to be critical of the way they were treated by others? Do the roles toxic people play in their lives deserve any mention when it comes to explaining the decision to turn to things like alcohol and drugs to deal with the things that happen to them? Or is it all just about what kind of rotten people they are and perpetuating this notion that they need to make good on every little thing they ever did wrong if they have any hope of carving out a good path to recovery? AA wants you to think that it was your fault that you fell into addiction. Well, was it? It's all right if your answer is no. It's all right to put blame where it belongs. Maybe you're not the only one who needs to make amends for you to break out of the addiction mindset. Maybe you need to hear the words, I'm sorry, or at least get help coming to grips with the fact that you'll never hear them from the people who should be saying them to you. How others treat you and treated you in the past is every bit as important in understanding what led to your addiction as admitting the wrongs you've done to others. AA seems to skip that step. Why? Because you can't have control over someone by empowering them, but you can by shaming them. So now I'd like to talk to anyone who is in recovery who has tried and failed at AA or anything like it. It's time to make this about you and not about any higher power. When you discovered that you had a problem, you got from point A to point B in that thought process and took action. You are the one trying to get and stay sober. Now, if we can just get you to stop appealing to a higher power and eliminate that middleman between the problem and the solution, you'll be light years ahead of most people who friend Bill W and then unfriend him when their higher power fails to motivate them to walk past that packy.
traditional therapy and counseling, discovering and dealing with root causes, and understanding the whys of your addiction will get you much further than going to meetings and being encouraged not to drink or turn to your drug of choice ever will. Ditto things like weight loss and the growing list of things that 12 steps have assimilated like some ecclesiastical board collective. It seems like there's a 12-step program for anything that might be quote-unquote wrong with you these days. Hmm. Imagine how much more successful a program like AA could actually be if it really truly was something self-affirming and not a front for trading bondage to a substance for bondage to a God, as one understands him. Imagine if they stopped telling people that they're powerless and started affirming that they're smart enough and capable enough of managing their sobriety with actual helps in the forms of things like psychotherapy. Sure, they maintain that they present AA and its companion 12-step programs as a single suggestion for dealing with addiction and acknowledge that other avenues to sobriety exist, but they aren't suggesting that you try anything besides AA, are they? Go to a meeting every day. Get a sponsor. Utilize your sponsor when you think you're going to drink. Appeal to your higher power when you think you're going to drink or shoot up or order that decadent dessert. They aren't suggesting that you're an individual and that a one-size-fits-all approach to recovery won't necessarily help you, even though that's true for more than 90% of the people who go through 12-step programs. They don't care. They don't care one iota whether or not you get sober. They care whether or not they can get you to think like they do, behave like they do, and do things the way they want them done. And that is it. There is a short list of externals that will help you manage addiction, and a vast majority exist within the world of psychology and psychotherapy. These solutions are offered and implemented by people, not higher powers. And I just want to clarify something that I said a little bit earlier. I'm not suggesting that the notion that if you have a single glass of wine, you're going to spiral back into addiction is necessarily bunk, because for some people it is true. What I am suggesting is that it isn't the zero-sum game that AA and its companion program suggest that it is. Your decision to steer back into the neighborhood of any addictive behavior is one that should be made between you and a licensed, experienced mental health care professional, not a bunch of people in a room slurping bad coffee and telling you don't do it. Since they like to refer to the way that they collect and keep people while failing more than nine out of every 10 that they attract as a suggestion, allow me to make one of my own. Explore all the options that there are for recovery. If the 12 steps don't get you there, you have other options. Options that don't involve appealing to higher powers or running on a hamster wheel where the score resets every time you get thrown from it. Keep moving forward in your understanding of yourself and your addiction. Find effective treatment and start taking your life back. That's how you find the best and most effective options, and that is how you get and stay unbound. enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's 
That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.